for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Last week we spoke with Mona Highland, a final year PhD student under the supervision of Professor David Henschel at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, all about her research into the effects of cannabinoids on the microRNA expressions in epilepsy. This week, we are talking to Rohit Shankar, MBE, a professor and consultant in developmental neuropsychiatry for adults with intellectual disabilities, many of whom also have epilepsy. So stay tuned to learn more about this often forgotten group of people their needs and how Rohit is working so incredibly hard to improve their quality of life. Rohit is Professor in Neuropsychiatry with the University of Plymouth Medical School, Director of its Cornwall Intellectual Disability Equitable Research or CIDA unit and both Consultant in Developmental Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Director at Cornwall Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. And Rohit is also the Chair of the South West Royal College of Psychiatrists. Now, if you're new to our channel, do make sure that you subscribe, hit that bell for notifications. It is a weekly podcast and video. Don't go anywhere, stay with us. So Rohit, could you tell us what got you into your work, first of all, please? How did you become who you are today, professionally? I think uh, a series of mistakes happened <laughs> And uh, I've somehow ended up uh, for my patient's misfortune as a specialist in specialist developmental neuropsychiatrist. Uh, and uh, it basically, uh, I went to medical school in India, then uh, trained in India to be a neuropsychiatrist, came over here, did my retraining in neuropsychiatry, and uh, uh, I was very attracted to working in developmental disabilities because of the complexity of the problems and the fact that uh, much of medicine gravitates towards, um, uh, generally towards um, simplistic or condition-based approaches. And that doesn't give a whole picture when we are looking after somebody with, say, a developmental disability. But also one of the other things is when it comes to something like working with developmental disability and mental health and even epilepsy in that context, one of the things is that there's no no obvious tip test or an ECG or something which you can say, yeah, nailed it. So I thought, uh, and this must be my narcissism, I thought, well, okay, maybe this is where I need my callings there and maybe I can help. Uh, help with uh, uh, actually improving people's lives with better diagnosis and helping shape that. So, and it's been it's been a wonderful journey to say the least. Uh, everyone thinks I'm an expert in something. Nobody knows what, but that's the way of the world. <laughs> quit it with the modesty. Quit that. Um, so, like your patients, the people that you tend to care for, is it are they adults or is this paediatric? My expertise or so-called expertise is in adults with developmental disability, but obviously I need to know the childhood underpinnings of yeah. their conditions and much of the research which happens actually happens in children with developmental issues uh, and then sort of they fall off 
uh, as they become adults. So we, we do the learning process is very much about trying to understand what's going on in the world with children with developmental disabilities. Can that be applied to adults with the intellectual disability? And the best examples for that is say something like epileptic encephalopathies. Yeah. So lots of work is done around that new molecules, whether it be CBD and other things coming in. But very few think about the 40 year old with a developmental disability. So somebody has to do that, that sort of work of trying to translate those challenges of which you see being addressed in children across into that. So that's sort of my so-called domain. And I love that's your domain because, uh, I mean, obviously it's crucial that we look after children and give them the best lives possible. But I don't know if it's because us adults aren't necessarily so cute anymore. Sometimes it feels like when we leave pediatric, it's kind of like we drop off the edge of the cliff and it's not seen as a priority anymore. And that's why we really need you, I guess. But there aren't many people with the, your title, are there really? Like, I, I haven't seen anyway that uh, many neuropsychiatrists around. No, I think uh, uh, it's sort of, um, if you create a need, then it expands. So it's a bit, uh, so I think uh, we are all ignorant at times about what's needed, but also just sort of one of the reasons why there has been no need is because most people with developmental disabilities in the past, either they would have been in institutions like yeah. mental health institutions and sort of looked after institutionally, but there has been a rightly a change in focus over the last 30, 40 years. And what we get is that more of our, especially in the UK, people are placed in our own communities and they are, I know that it sounds, it's, a, it's a slightly counterintuitive and I'll explain why. People are living longer with developmental disabilities. They're still way behind the general population. So the average age to which, say, you or me are expected to live or I'm expected to live till 79, you 80, Tori. But uh, the key thing which is there is that uh, uh, people with intellectual disabilities, the number bandied is 64. So there's that gap. But that is still much more than what it was, say, in 1947, when a person with Downs would, the average age was around around eight or nine years. So it's we've made progress, but not fully there. But the other big worry is that when, as people are growing older, we don't understand how can they live well. So they, an average person with a developmental disability is considered to have around 12 chronic conditions. Wow. Now imagine if you pile them with drugs for 12 different reasons, now that's not a thing which you want to be taking at the age of 40 and the impact on your bone and your thinking on various metabolic issues. So people, even if they live, they're not living well enough. And we need to start thinking about how we move away from a condition-based model to a more holistic model of looking at optimizing their well-being in a way in which that their trajectory of uh, longevity is expanded. Because it's about quality of life, not just how many seizures they have yes. or how many outbursts or how many times they put their feces on the wall or, you know, or all that type of thing. And actually, um, speaking of that lovely topic, feces on the walls, I think that's something uh, that most people aren't even aware of unless they're in that sphere or they've got a child with neurodevelopmental disabilities. Would you agree? Yes, I think I think ignorance is bliss, isn't it, at times? and and. Uh, Developmental disabilities, obviously, I see a lot of it because I work in that area. It is around 1% one, 1 to 1.5% of uh, the total population. But you, one might think that, oh, well, why are we so worried about the 1%? But this 1% has 
very differential outcomes whether it be from health perspective or resource perspective so from a health perspective obviously premature mortality but also there is significant burden from with regard to say polypharmacy and yeah. things like say seizures now seizures usually are part of their uh, part of their developmental disability makeup so then they don't get treated but uh, it's about just managing it and keeping them safe now obviously that is quite a resource incentive but when when we don't get it right then the chance of calling out paramedics getting them into ed hospital now there is some studies on that for example what you have is a uh, there's something known as um, uh, avoidable conditions to ed where you can people have been brought in where it could have been treated in community now the rates for something like a person with developmental disability as compared to you or me Tori, it's five times higher rates that they're brought into ED and the number one cause for that in 40% of times is seizures and when they are in if they are admitted they stay longer and the highly likelihood is that there some medication or something else gets bumped up without thinking of the bigger picture which then means that they are more likely to come to more harm by that immediate short-term reaction so it's it's about thinking st stepping back as opposed to stepping front but the problem is that when we are all anxious and we see somebody seizing or we see somebody behaving differently we want to do something and unless the, the challenge is about how do you define do something yeah. and uh, i think that's quite frustrating because at times there are no answers and science stops so it's really difficult then and when and at that time i think it's very important to actually do no harm or do less harm and that's where co-production and experts by experience and the families are very important because they have that knowledge uh, the historic knowledge about what might work or more importantly what will not work instead of just wasting our time trying it you're making me think of a friend i've known i've mentioned it in another podcast i think a friend of mine who has um cognitive issues, intellectual disability, epilepsy, a million other things going on. And she went into status epilepticus down here in London, but she's actually based in Scotland. She comes down here and she doesn't have enough of her drugs to last that length of time. She's not able to communicate effectively what's going on. Obviously, I'm no clinician. I can say what I do know about her condition, but that is it. And that's really tough as well. Also, because down here, they didn't have access to her records in Scotland. Um, and, and I just wonder from what you just said, I bet if they had access to her records and there had been perhaps better, more specific training for the clinicians involved, she wouldn't have been in there a month. Totally. I think, I think also the thing is, I think it's about uh, what was achieved needs to be taken with a hard look. So you obviously require records when somebody has such complexity and understanding about what needs to happen. We are in a time when everything is on our mobile phone. So we should be, we should be in a place where empowered care providers should just be able to use a universal lock system to just uh, unlock system to just tap and find out our mobile records if we are seizing or something that would be a very powerful tool and it's so practical isn't it that you immediately know what your healthcare plan is what will happen in a status when was your last status bang 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 you can just get on with it or who to call all that's there that would be perfect. Uh, too logical to actually happen, I guess. But <laughs> <even> the, 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I think we need to. Um, I don't know what you think, but I reckon we need to encourage like carers, mums, dads, even siblings and stuff to perhaps record seizures instead of trying to diagnose themselves or saying, oh, I know this is a certain type of seizure and just writing it out because none of us are experts, right? Oh, totally. I mean, it's sort of, uh, uh, especially in my population, I mean, it's sort of really difficult to actually make sense out of what is being told. And I often get things wrong and I put my hand on that. I mean, the biggest learning experience is when you get things wrong and you sort of learn from it. I'll give you an example. So I had this, uh, this sort of elderly elderly couple who uh, who would sort of um, come along every every like like clockwork with their daughter every every three months to a review and what they would describe was a typical seizure and uh, I would treat it I would pump up the medication every time the seizure would have happened two or three days before their appointment with me and I started thinking is that something I, I, I even went to that that sort of state where I actually said uh, is this possible that you might be getting very that the person might be getting very anxious about actually meeting me and that might be triggering seizures or any sort of sleep disturbances and seizures but uh, eventually I bit the bullet and I think it was around 12 months or 15 months later I asked them to video record the seizures and it took them a while to get the hang of the technology this is like 10 years ago to get the hang of a of the technology and things and when they finally brought it it was nothing like the seizures that they said oh and my God. Them, it was totally different and they were what they were presenting was very talking about was very different this one was very different and i asked them why why were you recounting i got verbatim what you said here as a description they said well dr shankar we thought you would like to know what this we thought you won't actually believe us so we went on youtube and uh, oh my gosh it looks like and we were telling you how a seizure looks like and i and i was sort of what would you say to something like that right like it was gobsmacked that you are trying to recount to me and these are people who are very caring parents yeah. so of uh, an individual and this is what i have and again the same thing so with regard to challenges at times we get social care coming along and saying oh you can't record video record seizures and i have to tell them look if i don't get that copy it's in their best interest oh it's deprivation of liberty i said well i think if you ask and if the person could consent they would prefer to live and uh, instead of uh, having at a risk of sudep that they would actually prefer to be recorded of what's recording and let me get an insight but these are things which we have to grapple with the practical hurdles of people's other jobs who are actually trying to do a good job obviously there's deprivation of liberty there is issues of privacy but my general thinking is most people would like me to know if they are having a seizure or not and diagnose it they're not <laughs> yeah and also recording seizures or, or other things that um what they might classify as unusual physical or even like uh psychiatric activities should we say um it's good just there's no such thing as sort of bad information to present to you guys and i really want people to know that they shouldn't feel intimidated by their neuropsychiatrist their neurologist whatever because uh, part of your job is to be approachable and to me non-judgmental isn't it i know like we sometimes have rubbish professionals of course but i do think it's a key key oh, role yeah. of you guys to be that person we can open up to the first thing I always do is I disown responsibility. That's the first thing. So I basically say we are all in it together. That's the first thing. It's like it's like solving a hundred piece jigsaw puzzle <laughs> together with 35 pieces. That's the whole point. So any pieces that they can add to it, 
great but it is a group effort so you might actually and you don't know how those 35 pieces link that's what you're given and you have to come to an understanding of what that picture looks like with those 35 pieces sometimes you get lucky with the eeg and other things which shoots up the number of pieces to 60 70 pieces brilliant right but on the whole you're still it's it's what uh, donald um, uh, rumfeld basically said uh, there are known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns <sighs> and the known knowns is easy everyone knows known knowns so you can easily get the evidence the my biggest challenge is always to try to convert as many unknown unknowns to known unknowns that's the that's where it lies uh, the more unknown unknowns that get into the known unknowns the more decisive and more confident decision making we can make i love your modesty it's so lovely and you i've spoken about uh, the dunning kruger effect before and it's so, so you're such a good example of that isn't it the more you learn those unknowns become knowns you're like okay i still don't know how to sort those out and fix them but at least they're there and perhaps long term you can help the person affected we can right? start planning we can start yeah. planning it's like we can start thinking of a of a problem and seeing and start of almost understand that there is a problem and quantify it so I think quantifying a problem most things to a so if somebody actually captures a video clip of some behavior or an episode that's the first step it might still be a I can it might not still make sense of it but it's a known unknown moving into something which actually brings a bit more uh, authenticity in my thinking about what it could be or in our team's thinking. I know somebody, right, who has severe intellectual disability, as in non-verbal, um, has never walked, um, has yeah, never spoken as blind, um, has refractory epilepsy, um, and her mum and dad feel so alone, so alone, and don't, because they're not clinicians, well, they're not specialists in medicine of any kind, they don't know how to ask for help. And I've heard that this is a really common issue for many families um hence we need more of you guys would you have any sort of tips for these families in terms of how they can ask for help and reach out i think one of our biggest challenges is that most people including i mean just forget people with intellectual disability if somebody like yourself tori with epilepsy would struggle if you're going into an appointment to sort of ensure what you take forward and how you carry yep. uh, information forward because you want to say 101 things you've got a gp who's quite stressed for time 10 15 minutes typing on a computer saying what's your problem or oh, that and you want to tell key things everything goes out of the window some people write it down but it doesn't actually capture in essence what happens but i think that's where something like the epsmon helps and very clear conflict of interest. I'm obviously the medical lead for the Epsmon and things, but it's free. It's free in the UK. And I think if people actually go through that, it's not going to give the full story, but it gives a very good credible story. But it also highlights if you can just sort of flash it under a health provider, whether it be a GP or a nurse or anyone, they would be able to appreciate from that very the key pullouts especially around change about what might have changed in seizures so somebody who's got historically so one of the biggest things is people come and say oh well my child used to have two seizures a year now it's just gone up to six seizures should i be worried and my first initial impulse would be 
no no there's nothing much to worry but when you actually think about it if it is too generalized seizures you're gone from a risk of being having five times higher sudep to something like 50 times higher sudep automatically and then there is also the issue about has the medications been being taken all right or is there something going wrong there has the settings changed is the person sleeping properly so if the seizures are very much the tip of the iceberg of a symptom of what the individual's functioning is a 20 year old who might have had two seizures a year as a 45 year old lady who's having six seizures a year is that actually a harbinger of early menopause is that because their hormones are changing is that actually so this so much or is that because their mother or father is now bedridden is that the anxiety which they can't communicate all sorts of things which come into play and is that because also maybe it's not about mom and dad actually being bedridden but is that because mom does not have enough time now to take the take her to the shops three times a week because she's looking after dad if you think about it there's so much you don't immediately percolate the moment you say well increase in seizures how can you expect somebody to immediately also start thinking whether it's a change in a family system which might be influencing it but that's my role but then it's not the GP's role and that's uh, where something like the Epsmon helps capture because that's where just bumping up the medication might not help. It might require social care involved to help support her to go to market three times a week as her pattern and her cycle is. How do you identify or try and identify if one of your patients has mental health issues? So I know a lot of them are non-verbal. How do you deal with that? The biggest key indicator is what two things which we call one is pervasiveness. So pervasiveness is a very beautiful term to say that have you had the problems which you have had for most times on most days. So when you think about it, so if you say you're not slept properly, yeah. the first thing is I would ask is how much are you sleeping? When did it start that you're not sleeping properly? So if you say, well, from the age of uh, two, I have not slept properly, not a worry. It's about quantifying it and saying, okay, now has it changed? So you say three weeks ago, you were sleeping nine hours at night. Now you sleep two hours every night, not just that one night when you sort of binge watch some TV, this thing. No, that's not the thing, but it's, and it's nothing to do with the Olympics being awake at, in Japan. So there are no factors and there is pervasiveness that for two or three weeks it's been going on on the same with mood, same with energy levels and same with engagement with outside activity. So instead of liking to go swimming, started to just be in the room, that all starts hinting towards some mental health change, which is different from suddenly losing, say, uh, just because somebody didn't give brown bread and give white bread, the person thumping the person for giving that or giving orange juice instead of apple juice that's not mental health change that's basically behavioral distress right. mental health change is chronic pervasive and will have an impact on biological functioning do you know what this year i haven't publicly said it yet but this first time um i think it started from like january february I started to go downhill mentally and I, I wasn't aware because it was so gradual, so gradual. And then it, unfortunately, like I would get to the point where I almost fell off the edge of the cliff. And so I think what you've just described is important to all of us. Everybody it doesn't have to be just those with intellectual disability or people who yeah. have seizures. It's just seeing slight changes in behavior or energy levels or, or whatever, 
all of what you just said. There is good stress and bad stress. Yeah. <laughs> so good stress gets things done, but it is like it's like a gear change where you actually go to the top gear basically and you're running smoothly and you can cope with a lot of things happening but you can't sustain it at that gear you have to come down from time to time now that's when you can have encounters with bad stress and the bad stress then can make you more vulnerable to getting into a rut and in a rut you're more again vulnerable so you're almost like it's like it's like going down steps so it's very rare that people just plummet to severe depression especially if they don't have a history of that what you do have is that say you might have people based on what's hitting them and various social and environmental factors can start moving them down the stairs and they never realize that there's no light on these stairs so they just go down and they never realize that they've reached the basement that's the worry that it's almost important that one takes heed of the number of stresses number of steps that we are going down so that we know that we are three steps down and into the basement so without because there's no lights there to help us usually uh, and we should take cognizance of what well wishers say and if they're saying well you're doing too much and well, our own body will tell us our own body will sort of scream out at times to say don't do it you're tired you're this thing but we sort of push it aside so and uh, move on and i think there are those are things which we should become a bit more alert to uh, yeah, I think culturally it's almost per perceived by many as being weak if you say, do you know what, I'm not up to it or I'm feeling a bit run down and I don't know why. Um, and I think lots of people, like like mums and dads, carers of people with learning disabilities don't realise that so many other people mm. are affected in such similar ways and that okay. people like yourself are aware of it. So it's important not just to track the health of their loved one, but also themselves, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they get into this sort of state where their whole life is around the individual. I know, yeah. of, I know of mums who sleep on the floor of their children's, uh, of their, this thing where, because they can't think of anything else because they had done that as when they were children. They would have seizures and they would this thing. Now, even when there is technology, when you've got very good CCTV cameras and, uh, You've got uh, noise technology which might wake up, wake people up. They still don't trust it. They just they've got into that rut and that habit of that. But that's having such a negative impact on their well-being. And we very rarely talk about the well-being of carers. Uh, it's such a topic that it's almost that it's too difficult to open up for anyone, whether it be the government or whether it be us as clinicians. We all it's it's like a game. We 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 have a game face. So you basically ask, are you okay? And people have to reply, yeah, I'm okay. The, you've got 15 minutes in your clinic. You can't start saying, oh, no, I'm not okay and start crying because that's your son's appointment or daughter's appointment, or your brother's appointment. You can't hog it. So, but where is that space for these people to think through? It's quite challenging. And that's, I think, why though, when you make notes prior to your, the, the appointment of your kid or the person you look after, it's important to make notes of how you feel as the carer too because how you feel affects the health of the one that you love or the person that you care for. It is, and it's quite interesting that uh, not all the time, but in some situations, what we have seen is, we've seen cry for help. You know that the family is struggling and the way they come to you is basically by by saying, well, there are more, there are more concerns about behavior, which then drives up the worry that, because the behavior 
is more about communication and the fact that the family is sort of freeing at the ends. But for them, they don't want to acknowledge it as behavior, but they would like it as seizures because then seizures can be treated and it does not blame the family. So it's, but when you look deep enough, it's that, oh, well, dad's now got a job on an oil rig or something. So mom's all alone and she's trying to cope and there's an increase in seizures, which could be, but there is also a social angle to it, which we have to slip in because it's really difficult because they want it to be seizures. But it, just because they want it to be seizures, it might not be seizures because it would be wrong to drug up a person thinking it's seizures. So that's where we have to unpackage the whole thing to actually stack stock of it and then try to get the right support for the individual based on their need, presenting need. So for people who've got this, this 15 minutes with you, for the families, what should they do in preparation for their appointment with you? Because I think it sounds like a bit of that unpack, unpacking kind of really needs to happen at home before the appointment, ideally. So what we do is, so usually uh, we have a pathway, an epilepsy pathway locally. So they get 20 minutes of me, actually. So that's oh, okay. the idea is that when they actually get me, that's more to check on their every three months on their on individual's well-being and if everything's going right. If it's not going very right, then I take it off the grid and we would hold a multi-agency meeting with the GP, social care, epilepsy nurse, all being present so that we can then make up short-term and long-term plans for mitigation and it's then it's information key so every potential stakeholder whether it be agency the social worker the aunt from timbuktu whoever so they can all i mean we got people from gibraltar who participate so it's like i know it's sort of a it, it's a, it's quite it's quite robust but it allows you to spell out where your angle is it allows you to then start outlining look it might not be just this can we also think about all these other things and your biggest strengths are that people will be able to bring in their thinking into it. So social care will say, okay, if it is this, what else can happen? Oh, the respite center's closed. We might need to give some other provision. So you learn, you learn a lot more than you give, you learn about that situation. And that helps you formulate over the next year or two, what needs to happen to that individual. And the clinic space is very much to check on whether that plan's going, getting carried out and are things going in the right direction. If they're not, again, it goes back to, the multi-agency meeting where we think through things. Oh, I'm so happy that you said, that you told us about all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, because lots of the time, I think the majority of the time, we don't know about any of that. We have no idea of the effort that goes in apart from, oh, well, you know, we're told, oh, you do a bit of paperwork and that's why the appointment is so short, but nobody knows about the other stuff that goes on and the planning and the number of people who actually care. And I'm hoping that by listening to this, families, can um well often who've got poor memories because they're so stressed out and depressed they can remind themselves a lot of thought effort and care is really going into the well-being of the the child or the patient as well as the family and i just think that that's mm, so heartwarming just to mention this is the idiosyncratic way in which we do things in cornwall so, right so in one way i can't i can't assert that this is what's happening nationwide but uh this is also captured in the national documents which uh, again conflict of interest i shared so it's called step together and it's free to download and uh, epilepsy action have been working with us to help um, set up with commissioning to test out the models of care which we are 
which we are sort of suggested in that similar to what i explained uh, and i think i think it is about uh, it is about transparency but it's also about making sure that we spend a lot of money in crisis when uh, and it's all about we are spending a lot of money to to sort of mitigate problems when actually we should be using it much earlier and right. being preventative so our models are sort of showing that we are being successful in spending it in the right direction to improve quality of life and become better i mean the other thing is that it's almost that it's not my job to tell people how and what they should do it's it's about empowerment it's about it's about we all are we are all experts at the end of the day but i am an expert in maybe the condition and i can bring the science which is there which is not always perfect into what it is but we all have to sort of it's almost like it's almost like a journey where you have a say the doctor the patient we all have to share our knowledge from our inadequacies putting it away and looking at other strengths to make the journey to limp forward with the sight of one eye hearing from the other to avoid any crashes so that's the way i would see it as in the interest of the person so that's and it can be wobbly it can be flimsy but we have to set our red lines to say what we need to do and that's how we sort of go forward in well you're setting a wonderful example for the other parts of the country and other parts of the world I, yeah, sorry, I'm going to make you vomit, aren't I? But I truly believe that. Um, yeah, and I hope that more people can realise that uh, the the worth of the investment in people like you. I, I, actually, do you know what? You directly impacted me. I'll give you, this is a good story. So last year, I said to my neurologist, mate, I'm not kidding, I'm about to have a tonic clonic because I can't sleep. And I said, look, I need a referral. And she referred me to a neuropsych who was able to help me but that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't able to say, I know these people are out there and through Rohat Shankar. And so <clears throat> I think it's even, well, I know people of your role are very important also for those of us without, you know, severe learning disabilities as well. What do you think? Working with people with learning disabilities has given me is a window of insight to my own inadequacies. It's like when you are thinking about complex medication. Yeah, I mean, we are all we are supposed to prescribe but the interaction between medications are so complex so i make sure that we have a pharmacist on board when we are discussing somebody really complex we have to have a psychologist to understand the behavior we have to have i mean why do we think if if you had say uh, eight different conditions with eight people with eight different conditions they would have seen eight different doctors now why do we expect that one doctor or one particular clinician can sort out all eight conditions in one person that's not going to happen so we have to invest into making sure that you get the best dividends in what you can work with for that individual so that's where the challenge lies so i think this is not about getting things right it is about trying our level best not to get things wrong that's where i would put it there so last point if you have anything to recommend to homo sapiens in general about healthcare for people um, or your type of patients, what might it be? Right, so at this particular juncture, uh, one of the things is that people with intellectual disability and epilepsy are always an afterthought. Now, what I mean by that is that if you think about it, any epilepsy service or anything is first designed primarily rightly, keeping in mind people with epilepsy, and then you bolt on those people with intellectual disability and epilepsy. 
Now, my proposal would be do the opposite. If you think about, so it's the lowest common denominator. If you get it right for the intellectual disability population, you're more likely to get it also right for everyone else above them. For example, if you build a ramp for people who have difficulty walking, now everyone, you, me and everyone can use that ramp. And we can also use it if I, if you sprain your leg in tennis, playing tennis, you can then use it even temporarily. So getting it right to the, to the most needy population will actually get it right for everything up. So let's almost turn the models upside down a bit where if we can sort of think about them and think about how will you, how is the one person who is the most needy who will access the service, most likely the person with epilepsy and ID who has significant cognitive deficits, multimorbidity and polypharmacy, how are we going to set a clinic for them? You start with that premise and then you'll see that most of the things will, it's sort of like it will start shape, the dominoes will start falling in place. So that's my, but then I am biased. Thanks so much to Rohit Shankar for providing us with such valuable insight into the needs of adults with intellectual disability, often along with psychiatric and physical disabilities, autism, and also often epilepsy. Do check out Rohit's recent paper, which he has co-authored named Stopping the Overmedication of People with Intellectual Disability, Autism, or Both, and Supporting Treatment and Appropriate Medication in Pediatrics, where he talks about the role of the psychiatrist, the social care providers, the GP in primary care, pharmacists, patients, carers, and advocates. It's a really great piece taking into account the perspectives of all parties. Next week, I will be chatting to Javier Savayos, a candidate advanced nurse practitioner in epilepsy based at Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. We are going to be talking about his role in the care of people with epilepsy from first seizure through to refractory epilepsies, women with epilepsy and pregnancy, intellectual disabilities, complex epilepsies, vagus nerve stimulation and gosh heaps more. You will hear his passion and a free fact here. We first met at King's College London prior lockdown obviously and um, where he was then an epilepsy research nurse and he very kindly did a cool guest blog for Epilepsy Sparks so check that one out epilepsysparks.com. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook and we'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Do subscribe to our podcast and know that we are always trying to improve what we are doing here for the programme. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.